So let's ask the Lord for a blessing. Our gracious God, eternal Father, we come before thee at this moment as we are privileged to gather here in the middle of this week for the express purpose of being instructed by our dear brother about a topic of great importance as he will speak to us about the canon of scripture, thy precious word, that gift of thine, that gift that comes from thy heart, that gift that unveils to us thy good pleasure in thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the eternal and living Word of God, who himself testified so plainly that all of those scriptures from Genesis to Revelation testify of him. And Lord, we pray, therefore, that also the instruction provided by our dear brother Barrett would be most helpful to us and that we would gain a new appreciation for the preciousness of thy word. And so remember our brother, guide and direct him, bless him, and continue to make him a blessing as he continues to labor also for the cause of thy son. Bless him in his labor at the seminary, be with him and his dear wife and his family, and remember us so together we ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. My dear young friend, the floor is yours. I think I'm hooked up, so I don't need that. Well, thank you for the invitation to address this very important topic that has many implications and ramifications for our use and our understanding and our confidence uh, that we have in the Bible, God's holy word. I'm going to talk about the canon and some of the historical and theological aspects of that. But there are some presuppositions that I want to address first. There are two questions that are really basic to our view of the Bible. Two questions. First of all, how do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? That's the first question. And the second question is, how do we know we have the Bible? Those two questions. And how we answer those questions is going to have, I say, many implications. In answering those questions, everybody comes to the Bible with presuppositions. And I make no apology for saying that I come to the Bible tonight with presuppositions. I believe that the Bible is the Word of God. I believe, therefore, that it's authoritative. I believe that it's sufficient. I believe that it's free from error. There are many implications to my affirmation that I believe in God's word as authoritative. And it's impossible. It's impossible to come to the Bible without presuppositions. Some of the critics, the unbelievers, will say, no, we're coming to the Bible with an open mind. We'll come to the Bible with an open mind. As soon as you hear that, don't be impressed. What they're saying is that we're going to, I'm going to use my head, I'm going to use my brain, my understanding to determine what is right, what is wrong, what is true, and what is not true. 
before I, come, before I open up a page in this Bible, my conviction is and my presupposition is that it's God's word, it's therefore authoritative, it's therefore infallible. Now, how do we answer those questions? How do I know, first of all, that the Bible is the word of God? And how do I know that I have the Bible? And the simple answer to both of those questions is a matter of faith. Now, faith is not just wishful thinking. This is not make-believe. When we speak of biblical faith, we are talking about that faith that is always objective, that faith that is based upon truths that are absolutely unchangeable, that are infallible. And the value of faith, whether we're talking about saving faith or any other exercise of our faith, is always determined by the object of that faith. So the object of our faith is in the Bible. But it starts with believing Christ. I believe Christ. I trusted him for my eternal destiny. We begin by believing Christ. But what do we know about Christ? What we know about Christ is what the Bible reveals to us about Christ. Christ is not the figment of our imaginations. He's not just some religious figure that uh, we have adopted. No, what we know about Jesus, what we know about Christ, is what he reveals, what the Bible reveals to us about him. So if I'm going to trust my eternal destiny to Christ, I'm going to believe the Bible that reveals Christ to me, and I'm going to believe what Jesus says about the Bible. So some would say that's circular reasoning. Well, okay. Uh, I I don't apologize for that. Uh, Van Til a great apologist of the church. You know, he said that if the only alternative to reasoning in a circle uh, is reasoning in a vicious circle. And that's exactly what the critics and what the unbelievers are going to do. So there are certain presuppositions that I want to start with before we move into the actual issue of the canon. I have six presuppositions, but I'm going to focus really just upon two of them for this address this evening. First of all, my conviction is, and my presupposition is, that God's word is revealed. It's a revelation. It is not theological dogma that the church has defined. The Bible is revelation. It's not the thoughts of man. It's the very mind of God. It is the very will of God that is revealed to us in this book. And so everything that is here, is what God expects us and what God wants us to know about who he is, about who we are, about how we establish a relationship with him, how we get uh, to the right place in eternity in heaven, and how we live this life uh, under the sun. It's revelation. It's not just religious thought. It's not church dogma. It's not tradition. It is the word of God. This is our ultimate authority. It's our rule for faith, what we believe, and our rule for practice, how we behave. The second presupposition, and this really is going to be fundamental to what we're addressing this evening, is that God's word is inspired. God's word is inspired. It is breathed out by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, inspiration is a supernatural event. It's a supernatural event. On the one hand, there are two aspects that I think is important for us to understand. 
On the one hand, inspiration is a process. It was a process. And you know the well-known statement that Peter makes uh, in 2 Peter chapter 1, 19 and 21, uh, that holy men of old were moved by the Holy Spirit. They were born along by the Spirit of God, inspired, inspired. God was breathing out his words. And that was a supernatural, historic process. When the prophets wrote, they were writing the very word of God. God was revealing that. I, I, I don't care so much in their different ideas about the mechanics of inspiration. Uh, I don't know that we can explain the mechanics of inspiration. I'm saying it's a miracle. It's supernatural. And once we start to define everything about the supernatural, in some ways we've defined it away. All right, There's a supernatural element here that God, using human instruments with different abilities, uh, with different backgrounds, God nonetheless used them to reveal to us his very words. The words of men, yes, but their personalities coming out, their backgrounds coming out, but it's one breath. It's one breath. Use the analogy sometimes of a, uh, of a musical instrument. I used to, used to play a trombone. Uh, and I, I blow on it, it would sound more or less like a trombone. Uh, and my sister, she played a cornet, and so I, I blow on that and it sounded like a cornet. Different sounds, but it was the same breath, right? You with me, the same breath that was going, uh, was going out. And so Peter is not Paul, and Isaiah is not Zechariah, but the same spirit. Now that, I say, was a supernatural Miraculous occurrence, but it was a historic process, a historic process. On the other hand, the second component of inspiration is that it results in a product. What God breathed out now is a corpus of truth. And this is what Paul is talking about in in the great Timothy passage, that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable, therefore, for instruction, for righteousness, all those things that Paul says that they're profitable for. So those two aspects, on the one hand, inspiration, historic process, it's not happening anymore. I'm a cessationist, right? Uh, and, and, and God is no longer inspiring writers, no longer inspiring men in this supernatural sense. That is complete. That is complete. But at the same time, the consequence of that historic, supernatural inspiration is that we have an inspired Bible. All right, this is the result. This is the result. Now, if I were to ask you, is this Bible that I have in my hand inspired? Is it inspired? You say, Barrett, you're not asking a very good question. On the one hand, no. It's the translation. The translators were not supernaturally inspired by God, but what they were doing in that translation process was working with a a product, and so yes, it is inspired. But we have to make that distinction between the miraculous part of it and the consequence of it, being that we have with us in Greek, in Hebrew, and in English, in German, and whatever other language, we have a product that we can hold up with authority and say this is indeed the inspired Word of God. Now, 
that inspiration, and this is the point that's going to transition to uh, our discussion here of the canon. Inspiration demands preservation. All right, I'm going to make this point uh, much here. Inspiration guarantees and demands preservation. Now, that's the second question. So, go back to those two questions. How do I know the Bible is the Word of God? Because it's inspired, and I believe that it's inspired. That's how I know it's the Word of God. Now then, how do I know I have the Bible? How do I know I have the Bible? And whereas inspiration was a supernatural process, a supernatural process, preservation is the work of providence. It's the work of providence. Now, providence is the work of God. It's, we say, the ordinary work of God. That is, God is always operating, He's always governing, He's always preserving that which He has created, that which He has done. It's the ordinary work of God, but it's nonetheless the work of God. It's nonetheless the work of God. So those books then that God has inspired, we have the assurance that they have been preserved. They have been preserved. Now, my assignment this evening... Uh, is to talk about those books that have been preserved. And how do I know that I have those, that I have those particular books that God inspired? I, 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 I think I've been invited next month as well, right, uh, to talk about a second aspect of this. How do, I, how do I know that the words that God has breathed out have been preserved for us? So those two aspects, and we'll talk more about that aspect, uh, Lord willing, the next time I have this occasion to, uh, to be here. So, as we talk then about the providence of God, the providence of God in uh, preserving his word in terms of the 66 books that we have in our Bible. So, let's talk about the canon. Our English word canon is just a transliteration of the Greek word kanon, canon. It's a word that means a rule. It's a word that means a standard. Hebrew word here that relates to it is kane. Sounds the same, different root, but the kane is a measuring line. It's that which is used for measuring something. And when we talk about the canon, the, the Greek word for canon, kanon, has the idea of something that is used for measuring. It's a measuring line. Uh, and it is also used then to refer to that which is measured. So when we talk about the canon of Scripture, Really, both of those ideas, both of those ideas are engaged in what we mean by the canon of Scripture. Foremost, I would say that the Word of God is a canon as it is the rule of measurement. It is that which measures. Uh, we, we, we say as part of our creed, yes, that the, the, we believe that the Bible is our only rule, canon, our only canon, our only rule for faith. And for practice, it is the word of God that is the rule by which we are to live. It's the word of God that is the standard, the measurement by which we are to live our particular lives day by day in the providence of God. So it marks the limits, marks the sphere, and it's used in that way in the scriptures. But it also refers to that which is measured. And when we talk then about the about the canon, uh, typically, and what we're going to be looking at tonight then, refers not so much to that aspect of its measuring, but, 
how do we, what has been measured that give to us the 66 books? But I want to emphasize, uh, and primarily the, the, the main sense of the scripture being canon is that it is our rule. It is that which measures us. It is that which sets the line by which we are to adhere. But is the sense of that which is measured that has brought this word into the sphere in which we're talking tonight, these 66 books. As I open up my Bible, there's an index, table of contents. All right, how do I know that all of those books then are the word of God? Uh, And the bottom line is that it's going to be the exercise of the providence of God that has manipulated events, manipulated circumstances, that has caused men to recognize what are the authoritative books. I'll make this statement and then we'll look at some of the evidence. Books are not canonical because the church determined them to be canonical. The church does not determine the canon. In the providence of God, the church recognized those books that are canonical. It's a big difference. The big difference. One of the big differences between our Protestant view of the Scripture and the Roman Catholic view of the Scripture. Uh, Rome argues that, A, the authority is principally the church. It's the church that said which books are canonical, and so the church stands above the Scriptures. No, no. It is not that the church has determined what the books are, but they have recognized in the providence of God what the canonical books indeed are. So, once we recognize, once the church is recognized and, and, and the body here is recognized, uh, what is canonical, that fixes it. It makes a fixed book, right? There's no other changes that can be made. A big difference, a big difference between conservatism and liberal, critical, liberal thinking. The liberals, the critics, want to date the establishing of the canon as late as they possibly can. They want to date it as late as they possibly can because their idea is that before the book is canonical, you can make any changes in it that you want, you can make any alterations in it you want, but once it's canonical, yeah, it's fixed. So I agree with them there. Once it's canonical, it's fixed. But they want to argue for very late dates of the establishing the recognition of the canon, establishing of the canon from their perspective. But here's what we're going to argue. That books were canonical. Books were canonical immediately upon their inspiration, if they're inspired. Inspiration demands, inspiration guarantees preservation and canonicity. Inspiration guarantees canonicity. So as soon as Moses wrote Genesis, it was canonical. As soon as Moses wrote Exodus, it was canonical. Canonical, And you go right through the Bible. Books, if they're inspired, are canonically, are, are canon immediately. Canon immediately. Now, in that sense, certainly, in that sense, certainly, of it being the rule for faith and practice, but also, also it was accepted and recognized 
uh, by the people as being the word of God. So inspiration is the key factor. Inspiration is the key factor uh, that we use to determine and recognize, not the word determine, but to recognize those books that indeed are canonical. Now, as we look at the Old Testament and in the New Testament, same basic principle, same basic principle, but a, a different operation, a different operation. The Old Testament was written over a period of a thousand years. Moses, the first of the biblical writers, began to write in the middle of the 15th century B.C., and the last book uh, of the Hebrew Scriptures, the book of Chronicles. Uh, Hebrew order is a bit different than what we have in our English Bible, same books, but different order. Uh, those, uh, that was written in the middle of the 5th century, so a thousand years, a thousand years in which the Old Testament was written. But as soon as every book was written, again, I emphasize that it was canonical. It was regarded as authoritative. But in the providence of God, in the providence of God, these books then were ultimately, ultimately brought together. They were ultimately collected, ultimately collected. I would argue that they came into the collection that we know as the Old Testament uh, during the time of Ezra. All right? Ezra, I would argue, would be the collector uh, of all of these inspired books that were here and there and however they were collected, we don't, we don't know, we don't have that record. But that canon closed then, in the middle of the 5th century, about 424. In, in fact, in fact, Josephus, you, you've perhaps heard of Josephus, right, a Jewish historian uh, in the time of Christ. Um, he made the statement, I, I don't give him credibility for everything he says, but some things are at least are worthy of, of, of notation. Uh, Josephus argued that there was no other prophetic activity after the time of Darius II. Okay? No other prophetic activity after the time of Darius II. Darius II, 424. So that's our cutoff date. All right? That's our cutoff date for the collection here of the Old Testament canon by I think Ezra the critics the critics say no the Old Testament was not settled until AD 90 and they talk about a council of Jamnia uh, that supposedly organized and brought all of the Old Testament books uh, together uh, and excuse me just a minute yeah I gotta at 8 o'clock my watch goes off to remind me to take my pill. Yeah. But I took it before I came in. So, yeah, we're, we're getting old, Bart. Yeah, we're, we're getting old. Yeah. So you take, take your pill. It used to be that, you know, Sander and I would every night say, I, I love you, and now is it, you take your pill? Uh, so, same, same thing. All right. So the vibration has stopped now on my wrist. That was what that was. Jamnia. Uh, there, there's no record. Now, we know that there was a Jamnia, a place of, of religious learning among the Jews, but there's not a shred of evidence uh, that they ever addressed the issue of the canon. But the critics say, no, Jamnia, AD 90, that's when the Old Testament canon was established. Now, why do they want that? 
because they want the ability to change the text, to see that text in fluctuation, uh, that it was being edited and changed all the way along the line until finally. We reject that. We reject that. So if we put the Old Testament canon at the end of the time of Ezra, it certainly corresponds to what we see in the New Testament. Remember what Jesus said? Uh, Bart made the uh, allusion to Jesus speaking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, that all the scriptures spoke of him. But remember how Christ talked about the scripture? He said, the law and the prophets and the Psalms. That encompasses, those three statements encompass the entirety of what we know as the Old Testament. We divide the Old Testament differently. As there's the Pentateuch and there's the historical books and the poetry and the prophets. But the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, was divided into this tripart uh, tripart understanding, the law, that's the books of Moses, the prophets, both the former prophets and the latter prophets. So Joshua right on through to Malachi would be in that prophetic section. And then the writings. The writings were the poetry uh, and those special books that were uh, used at certain festival times in, uh, in, in the Jewish liturgy. Uh, There were five books called the Megaloth, five scrolls, uh, that were put together for liturgical purposes. We have what, you know, our our Bibles are what we call a codex form, all right, with pages, easy, easy to find, and we can just turn turn the pages. Uh, But they use scrolls, and these scrolls would be long and very difficult to find things uh, at times. So they put these five scrolls together for liturgical purposes so that they could be easily located. Uh, So you have, oh, for instance, you have uh, the Song of Solomon that is there that was read uh, at at the time of Passover. You have the Book of Ruth that was read, uh, Ecclesiastes and Lamentations. These, These books that were put together. Other than that, everything was by by the authorship. And this is what Jesus refers to. So by the time of Jesus, when Jesus makes that statement, not only is he saying that everything in the Old Testament spoke about me, but he's also saying, here's the Old Testament canon. Here's the Old Testament canon. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Everything is right there. Now, after the establishing of the canon by uh, Ezra, in later Jewish tradition, we know this from the, uh, from the Talmud, particularly in the tractate called Baba Batri, uh, that there were certain disputes. And there were some arguments that certain books were suspicious. Uh, call these the antilegomena. The antilegomena, those books that were spoken against for various reasons. So there were some Jews after the establishing of Ezra, uh, that would, they had problems with Proverbs, for instance, uh, because of the seemingly contradictory statements that occur in Proverbs. Answer a fool according to his folly. And the very next verse says what? Answer not a fool according to his folly. So you have an apparent contradiction there, and so, oh, that's maybe 
not really inspired. Ecclesiastes, because of its seemingly pessimistic view of life. Uh, Song of Solomon, because of its eroticism, seemingly. So there were these books that were regarded as antilegomena. But again, in the providence of God, in the providence of God, he ruled and made sure that even that, those attacks were set aside. And these are the books, I say, that were, that were accepted. So the Old Testament is uh, a little different in the data that we have uh, that establishes it, but I think that the fact of its existence, the fact of its preservation is, is well settled, or is well settled indeed. And you have the virginal evidence from the Septuagint that corresponds to that, so we can have that authority in the providence of God. The Old Testament books that we have from Genesis in our order to Malachi indeed are the very words that God, the books that God had revealed the books that God had inspired, the books that God has preserved and have been recognized, have been recognized then as the word of God. But the primary thing, and I emphasize this, I don't mind repeating myself here because I want this to sink in, that inspiration, it is inspiration that demands and guarantees the preservation both in terms of its canonicity is being recognized as the word of God and also as we'll see next time even regarding the very words. So let's move on to the New Testament because we do have a a little more uh, criteria that has been established uh, by the early church uh, for recognizing uh, what these canonical books were. But at the foundation of it again is the idea of inspiration. That's where it starts. Any book, any book that was inspired, I say, is going to be preserved. Now, could the biblical authors write something that wasn't inspired? Sure. And my guess is they did. We don't have it. And even if it came up next week, we've, maybe we found a book next week that said, I, Paul, wrote this. I, Paul, wrote this. Uh, believe me, I wrote it. Uh, I, I wouldn't accept it uh, as being an inspired work because it's been lost all of these ages. Discovery is not preservation, right? Discovery, and I'll have much to say about that next week as well, or not next week, but whenever we come back, uh, that preservation is not discovery. We want a continuity here. Uh, of its existence. So inspiration is absolutely the key. But then they considered the human aspect of it. And there were four elements here uh, that were three or four elements that were part of this human recognition. They looked for the authorship. Is this book written by an apostle? Is it written by an apostle? The apostolicity. Uh, And if it was written by an apostle, that was a a key factor that was used uh, in the early church to recognize uh, that this is an inspired work. If not directly by the apostle, that there was some kind of apostolic connection. For we do have those those books in the New Testament that were not written by apostles. Uh, There was Luke. All right, Luke was not an apostle. But there was a very definite 
Pauline connection to Luke, right? Mark was not an apostle, but the tradition is that what Mark has written really is, in some ways, the gospel of Peter. Uh, that the influence of Peter and the instruction of Peter and Mark was uh, connected there. So the apostolic connection, uh, the apostolic authorship was going to be a key, a key factor. And then the contents, the contents. Does it conform? Does it conform to previous revelation? Does it conform to previous revelation? The spirit of the prophets, right, are subject to the prophets. And so one way of their examining a book was to look at the contents of it. Does this conform to what we already know to be the word of God? And if it didn't, then it was, it was rejected. Uh, and some of that was happily so. Even in the New Testament, there were some books, there were some books that for a while uh, were regarded as being canonical, as being inspired. But they didn't pass the muster. They didn't pass the test because of the content. There were things in these books that were contrary to what otherwise the Scripture was teaching. I, I think, for instance, here of First Clement, uh, there is a Clement that's mentioned in the Bible, and we have writings from Clement that date probably to his time. Uh, and in some segments of the church, they, they recognize it as canonical. But there were things in there that were strange. His primary proof, for instance, of the resurrection of Jesus, he tells the story of the phoenix bird. You know that story? Uh, of the phoenix bird, there's a bird that lived for 500 years in Egypt, uh, and after 500 years, this bird would die, uh, and it would rot and corrupt, and out of the corrupting juices of that bird would arise now another phoenix bird that would live for 500 years. And yeah, So he tells the story of the phoenix bird, and its conclusion is, you see, here is the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. right? And that was his primary argument for the resurrection of Christ. Well, we believe in the resurrection, he believed, but yeah, I don't think I want to use the phoenix bird as an evidence of that. So it was rejected ultimately uh, by the church as a whole. Same thing for other apocryphal works, pseudepigraphal works. The content did not match. But that was always the test that God gave for recognizing his word. Remember even back in Deuteronomy, you go back to Deuteronomy, remember, and here, here, come a, here comes a prophet. And how do I know this prophet? How do I know this prophet is really telling me the word of God? And Moses, under inspiration, gives some tests as to how to recognize a true prophet. Signs, miracles, yeah, that's good. Ability to predict the future accurately, that's good. If he predicts the future, it doesn't happen. You know he's a false prophet. But one of the key, one of the key features was his conformity to what has already been revealed. So if there is a prophet and he predicts the future and it comes to pass accurately, and here's a prophet and he does signs and wonders, but then he also says, go after other gods, you know that he is a false prophet because he's giving a message there that is contrary to what has already been revealed. So the content becomes a key, 
that was used in determining, recognizing books that were canonical. And then the universality, the universality of the works. Uh, Was this book accepted right across the known church? Was it accepted just in one location? And and there were those books, again, that were antilegomena. James was sometimes rejected. Peter was sometimes rejected. Uh, Revelation, sometimes rejected. But Shepherd of Hermas was in certain places accepted. Clement was accepted. Polycarp was accepted. But in small segments of the, the church. So the universality... If it was just this segment, no, no, no. These, the, the, the widespread nature, and this is going to be an important argument as we talk about the text next time as well. The universality uh, of, that, of that tradition. So by looking at these criteria, if you will, in three, oh, what's the date? I've got a date here someplace if I look at my notes once in a while. Yeah. 397. In 397 BC, there was a, 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 a council of Carthage. 397, a council of Carthage that finally, in, for the New Testament, settled the issue. It settled the issue. Now, that's a long time after the church has come into existence. But there were controversies. And it really was the It was the teaching of certain heretics, the teaching of certain heretics that generated these canonical debates in the early church. Because the critics or, 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 or these, these heretics were denying that this is God's word. They had their particular point. So there's, uh, there's Papias that rejected everything that was Pauline. Uh, there's Marcion that rejected some of Paul's stuff and yeah, because, so because of these her- heretics that were questioning and bringing into suspicion uh, doubts about this book or that book, the church had to debate it and the church had to bring a council together uh, to get this thing once and all for settled. And at the Council of Carthage in 397, whatever I said, uh, the final issue was made. This settles it as far as the Orthodox Church is concerned. And these were some of the criteria. What, I, what I've given to you here are some of the criteria that were used in that council uh, that ultimately settled on the books now that we hold in our Bible. Now, I emphasize again that in that council, the council did not determine, the council did not determine, decide which book, but they recognize. And I want to, I'm making a difference here between a determination of the canon and a recognition of the canon. They did not determine the canon. What determined the canon? Inspiration. Inspiration determined it. But they recognized it. And in the providence of God, in the providence of God, the preservation of God, of his word, guaranteed that the church made the right decision. Yeah, I, 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 there, were, there were votes taken, I suppose. Yeah, could, could I put it this way? That, yeah, 
in, in a good sense, I, I, I say those boats were rigged, yeah, that God was superintending, that God was superintending and assured that the right decision, this is the providence of God, the ordinary work of God that was manipulating and causing, causing those council members to come to the right decision about what is indeed the word of God. So we have that evidence. We have that evidence. And we can have the certainty that notwithstanding the debates and notwithstanding the heretics and notwithstanding that in the providence of God, according to the preservation of his inspired word, we can be absolutely certain that what we have here in our table of contents and is followed up in that book indeed is the canon of scripture, the canonical books, these 66, these 66 books. We can have it assured by faith, by faith. But faith that is objective, faith that is based there upon the evidence of the word of God itself. Now that's the procedure, right? That's the procedure. Now we do have evidence earlier than that final council of Carthage that demonstrates that these books were already being recognized. And let me just run through some of this. I don't want to bore you with some of this historic evidence, but we do have evidence. And what I want to do here just for a few moments is, is to go to some of our uh, some, some of this evidence beginning with what we know the period of the Greek apologist all the way down to the New Testament times itself to see the evidence that is, exists for us uh, concerning uh, the, the establishing of the canon. Period of the Greek apologist between 120 and 170. All right, this is the time period I'm talking about. And as early as AD 120, AD 170, we have evidence, we have records of what was regarded, what they were regarding as the books of the canon. The earliest evidence that we have in this period is called the Muratorian canon, the Muratorian canon. And we actually have a copy of this that dates to AD 170. So we're just 70 years, a little over 70 years from the close of the New Testament writing. Date the Apocalypse, Revelation, to about 80, 90, no later than 100. So just 80 years or so, uh, we have this list that uh, begins with a reference to Luke. It begins with a reference to Luke. There's no reference to Matthew. There's no reference to Mark. But it makes the statement that Luke is the third gospel, and there's a lacuna, there's, there's a break there, the text is not complete. So we can only assume that if Luke is the third gospel, that Matthew and Mark must have been the first gospel, first two gospels that they have. But they, they, it, begins with, it begins with Luke as the third gospel, and it claims that Paul had associated himself with him, so there's that apostolic link, all right, that the Muratorian canon is, is, is using. Luke was not an apostle, but Paul was associated, so there's that, there's that authoritative connection. It makes reference to John's gospel, and it quotes then 1 John 1, uh, that says the same spirit, the same principal spirit then spoke in all of the gospels. He mentions Acts by Luke, 13 letters identified as Paul. 
He warns then against certain forged letters of Paul. And Paul, we're going to see in a moment or two, uh, made warnings along the same line that his writings were being forged. And here's how we're going to tell the difference. Rejects the shepherd of Hermas. Accepts Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter. So almost all that we have uh, was recognized here as being the canon of Scripture. Irenaeus, dating him to about 140 to 203. His chief work was a five-volume treatise dealing with the heresies of the day. He doesn't list the canon, as it were, not a list of books, but what he does is he quotes. He quotes from virtually every book of the New Testament, recognizing it to be the authoritative, the authoritative word of God. So there's a good piece of evidence. Justin Martyr, A.D. 40. He mentions only 10 books of the New Testament, but with important statements. His attitude then about uh, the Gospels as the memoirs of the apostles and those who followed him. Again, suggesting that Mark and Luke uh, are connected to the apostles by Peter and by Paul. So expressing, even though I say it's not a list of the books, we see at that early date the criteria was being used to identify which of those books uh, were involved. But even interestingly enough, some of the heretics, some of the heretics give us evidence of what books were regarded as canonical, particularly some of the early Gnostics. Gnosticism was one of the first heresies uh, that plagued the New Testament church, and we see instances of that uh, even in Paul's writing as he's refuting things that had to be Gnosticism. John particularly in his first epistle, the Gnostics believed they, they, they had a dualistic uh, philosophy, if you will, that there was a contrast between that which was spiritual and that which was material. Uh, and so that led to some odd views concerning Jesus, uh, that Jesus was just an apparition, that there was no real humanity of Jesus. Uh, and this is, this is why John says in First John, well, the things that we have touched and the things that we have seen, the things that we have handled, demonstrating the reality of the humanity of Christ. But I say in some of these Gnostic uh, heretics, they make references to certain biblical books. Um, and it becomes clear from uh, Valentinus, Gnostic heretic. If you never heard of him, fine, I forgot about him until I put all these notes. Uh, by A.D. 140, by A.D. 140, we know that all the books of the New Testament were recognized in Rome uh, as being biblical books, coming from a heretic, but nonetheless, uh, the evidence that these books indeed were so recognized. Marcion and Papias, I made reference again, uh, they, they reject Pauline epistles and omit everything that was written by him, but it does indicate what they were refuting in their heresies, but they recognize, or it demonstrates the recognition that those books were indeed canonical. Then we have the period of the Apostolic Fathers, and Clement of Rome that I mentioned a moment ago, Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp. Uh, these are important witnesses. Again, not so much because they list the books, but in, in their theological treatises, they are quoting, 
They are quoting from the New Testament books over and over again in virtually every book that we have in our, old, in, in our New Testament canon are referred to, are quoted, are alluded to uh, by these early church fathers. And it goes even beyond that. When we look at the evidence of the New Testament itself. And this, I think, is an important witness to what I'm saying about books being canonical immediately upon their writing. And the same thing goes true for the Old Testament as well. Uh, You remember, for instance, Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah wrote that in Palestine, but here during Babylon, and he's got a copy of Jeremiah already uh, in, in Babylon that he's reading. And he uses that as the authoritative word of God. He sees that as the authority. And, but they were contemporaries. Yeah, Jeremiah and Daniel were contemporaries, but Daniel is recognizing what Jeremiah wrote to be the word of God, immediately recognized as being canonical. And the same thing is going to be seen in, I say, the New Testament as well. Uh, in, in 2 Peter 3.15, uh, Peter recommends Paul. And he calls the writings of Paul scripture, has that interesting statement, right, that Paul, he says, you know, Paul's hard to understand in places, like other scripture, like other scripture. And it makes you wonder if Peter read, wrote, read what he wrote, because there's stuff in Peter that's pretty hard to understand too. Uh, but the key thing is that he links it. He links Paul with all the other scriptures. And they were contemporaries. He recognized that what Paul was writing was the very word of God. In, uh, you compare 1 Corinthians 9, 9 and 1 Timothy 5, 18, Paul is quoting Luke. In Timothy, Paul quotes Luke as scripture, and he calls it the scripture, recognizing what Luke wrote immediately to be the word of God. Jude does the same thing with Peter, uh, quoting Peter, recognizing the authority of Peter as the Word of God. And the New Testament writers themselves, not just recognizing one of their uh, contemporaries to be authoritative, to be inspired, but they recognize themselves to be inspired. Uh, Paul, Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3.14, uh, was warning uh, not to be taken up by, and not to be fooled by those that were writing in his name. There were forgeries that were going out. And Paul says, here, let me make it clear to you. Here's how we're, I'm going to sign all of these, and you can tell that they're authoritative and authentic by this signature. There were competitions, but he's recognizing the authority of what he was writing, that he was under the authority of the Spirit of God being borne along by that Spirit uh, in the proclamation of his truth. He says the same thing in Colossians. Paul directs the reader... Uh, the letter of Colossians, to be read to the churches. And he says when you read that, you read also the letter to the Laodiceans. Now, the public reading, the public reading of the scriptures was a way of handling, if you will, those inspired books. We see that in the Old Testament as well. There's Joshua, he read the law. Uh, There's Ezra, he read the law to the people. Nehemiah read the law to the people. So the public reading, the public reading is a way of acknowledging the inspired authority 
This is why in, in Revelation, right? In Revelation, blessed, blessed is he who reads, singular, and they who hear, plural, right? The public reading uh, of that word was a crucial demonstration, recognition of its authority. But I'm saying Paul makes that statement concerning Colossians. He said, when you read this, read also the letter to the Laodiceans. Now, wait a minute. Let's go to our table of contents. Is there a letter to, to the Laodiceans? Well, in Revelation there is, but not, not a whole book. But Paul says, I want you to read the epistle to Laodicea. Do we have it or do we not? If there was, if there was a letter that Paul wrote to the Laodiceans specifically, so-called, we don't have it. And so therefore our conclusion is what? It wasn't inspired. It wasn't inspired. Because if it was inspired, it would have been preserved. But it's not been preserved. Unless, and this would be my suggestion to you, that these letters, that these letters that Paul was writing, particularly in uh, those of his first missionary journey there, were cyclic letters. All right? They were cyclic letters. Uh, and they were to be shared. They were to be shared. And a very common conservative interpretation of this, and this would be, would be my suggestion, that what at that time is the letter in Laodicea is what we know as Ephesians. All right? That the, what we know as the Ephesian letter was most likely the Laodicean letter that Paul was talking about. It just happened to be in Laodicea uh, at the time that Paul was referring to the Colossians. But you can work that out for yourself. So that's, it's either that... It's either that or Paul wrote something that was not inspired, but he's recommending the public reading of it, which was a sign of its inspiration. And then, of course, Revelation puts a solemn curse on anybody that would dare change the word. So the evidence, the evidence of the authority of the rule, the canonicity, was recognized immediately was recognized immediately. As soon as those books were written, they were recognized as being canonical, authoritative, the rule. And then in the providence of God, in the providence of God, through this, through this, through this, they were recognized. They were recognized. Now, it's been settled a long time for us. It's been settled a long time from our perspective. All we do, we buy our Bibles and there's the table of contents and there they are. And we, and, and we don't have the Apocrypha in here. We don't have the Pseudepigrapha in here. We, don't, we, we have the confidence because of our belief and our faith in the providence of God that is assured that what he has inspired has been preserved, that we can hold up this book and say this is, these 66 books are indeed the authoritative word of God. Not the Apocrypha. Not the Apocrypha. Oh, the Apocrypha is interesting reading. If you've never read it, read it. Uh, interesting reading some of the stuff. But you'll soon see that it's not the same quality. It's not the same spirit that we have in what we have as our Bible. The Word of God. The Word of God. So can we have assurance? Can we have the assurance that we have the Bible. 
How do I know the Bible is the Word of God? By faith. I believe it's inspired. Therefore, the Word of God breathed out. But how do I know I have that Bible? Well, by faith. By faith in the providence of God, which is a work of God, not a supernatural work of God. We we, we say the ordinary work of God. Now, anything that God does from our perspective is extraordinary for sure. But the ordinary work of God, in that is what God is always doing. God is always ruling. God is always preserving all of his creation to the end of his own glory and the corollary good to his people. But particularly in this subject that we're addressing, God was preserving his word. That which he inspired, that process is, is stopped. All right? That, that, that miraculous, that supernatural process is no longer going on. But that supernatural process made a product. It resulted in a product that is the very word of God that has been, as we sang tonight, settled, settled forever in heaven. The authority, the authority. So let us not have any doubts. Let us not have any suspicions that there's something else out there. There's something in here that ought not to be there. We can trust it. We can trust that this indeed is the Word of God. Now that's, in a nutshell, the issue of the canon. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come with thanksgiving for the gift of Thy Word to us. Lord, what an amazing gift it is that Thou hast so condescended to reveal Thyself to us. Revealing to us who thou art, revealing to us who we are, and our desperate need of thee, and how there can be a reconciliation between us. And a book that reveals to us the very course of life that we are to live. Lord, forgive us for taking it for granted. Forgive us, Lord, for our careless use of it. Let us learn to love this book, to read this book, realizing that every word, even those genealogies, the strange laws that seem to be so outdated, is thy word. Of all the things that thou could have said, this is what thou didst say to us. So give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and wills to obey. We pray, Lord, that our discussion this evening has been helpful to some degree. And we pray that thou would have thy hand of benediction upon this congregation and for their interest in these very important topics. So bless them in their ministry here. We commit this into thy hands for Jesus' sake. Amen.